0: Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, Bald Men on Campus, a new ESPN podcast hosted by Jay Billis, LaFonzo Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. These ESPN basketball personalities give you an all-access pass inside the world of college basketball talking to the biggest names in the sport. That's Bald Men on Campus. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also, The Book of Boba Fett is coming to Disney Plus on December 29th, but you can watch the trailer for this thrilling Star Wars adventure of the legendary bounty hunter Boba Fett and mercenary Fennec Shand. Follow the journey as the two navigate the galaxy's underworld to stake their claim on the territory once ruled by Jabba the Hutt. That's The Book of Boba Fett. Check out the trailer now on Disney Plus. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the right time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening. Wherever you get your podcasts, rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Uh, joining us this week is when we do guests. Uh, he is the host of Slow Burn 6. His name is Joel Anderson, and I have to say, uh, Joel from Missouri City has been a little cocky with this because we had to tape this a day early, and so it is Tuesday, and he brought that Astros hat out. Even though it is entirely possible that by the time the people see this, the Astros might be eliminated.
1: Uh, did you say you're from Houston? Right. Yeah, I'm from Houston. You, really? And, and, and so there's a World Series going on. There's a Houston team minute, right? Going to be playing at home, and, and so... Who are you rooting for again?
0: Oh, the Braves, no question. As it's been since the year 1986, and we moved to Houston in 1987.
1: Just proving, like I've always said, that the North Side isn't really Houston, but that's fair. Okay. Oh, okay. That's, that's where we're going with. That's, that,
0: that, 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 that's what we're going with. Okay. Um, I see you got your Fired Coach University uh, hoodie on there. <laughs> Shout out to the Fired Frog, Gary Patterson.
1: Every school has an attraction. We have a Fired Frog with a statue. Y'all got a petting zoo down there in Austin, so.
0: <laughs> Dude. <laughs> I don't even know what we can talk about associated with what's going on around the uh, Texas Longhorn football program right now. And you know why I don't know if we can talk about it? Because I haven't seen any definitive report about whether or not this monkey actually harmed somebody. Because once we find (laughs) out if the monkey actually did something to somebody, now it's all wide open. We can talk about whatever. But as things stand right now, I need to know, did that monkey really like almost devour
1: a child? Is there not an incident report? You'd think that'd be something like somebody would have had to call somebody if what is alleged the monkey did to a small child actually happened, right? Somebody got put in some paperwork.
0: Yeah, I just need to know. Speaking of paperwork, they got a permit for that monkey. Like I just I just don't believe that you can just have a monkey up in your crib. Like that's just not that that, that can't be it.
1: It's Texas, man. I mean you can carry a gun wherever you want. I sure yeah, you can yeah, have a monkey. That's
0: true, but you know why you can carry a gun in case you gotta shoot somebody's monkey. And I'm like <laughs> like, like, like they, they, they they apparently got this monkey. What do you do with the monkey when you go out of town? Like, there ain't no monkey kennels.
1: Man, yeah, you can't take it to PetSmart or nothing like that. (laughs) Uh, I assume that monkey, the young lady, appears to have a road show. So I imagine that where she goes, the monkey goes.
0: How you get the monkey there? Are you allowed to take a monkey on a plane?
1: Man, that's another good question. I I mean, what kind of salary do you think uh, special teams coach at the university of texas makes
0: i have been told that his salary is actually pretty significant like i think that he is kind of way up on the special teams coach pecking order
1: probably afford you know monkey storage that i imagine if you got to do it if you fly united or delta you know yeah if somebody can pay for it he's in that class of people that could pay for it you know if the Pole Assassin wants to make that happen.
0: Dude, I spent so much of Monday night like looking up the Pole Assassin and the monkey. <laughs> and if you don't know what we're talking about, just Google Pole Assassin. And I think that'll get you to the bottom of where this is. Because you know where this is really bad for Texas. This is what happens when you got two rivals. You know what I'm saying? Because you got, you got the Aggies digging up the story. And then you got the Sooners to come dance on you when you got a story that involves a special teams coach. A monkey and a pole <laughs> assassin, who has been on Jerry Springer, as it seems LaPole like multiple assistant. times,
1: right? There's not just one. I feel like there's oh, a really? couple appearances. I feel like she, yeah, that she was a repeat guest. I, I did mean, not know you saw the show. You know what I'm saying? It seemed like that's something he was very impressed, according to the tweet that we were sharing the other night. So I yeah. assume, you know, not, she's a like, right? special guest. Yeah, bring her back. I, right.
0: I mean, she she possesses an incredible uh, amount of core strength like if there's yes. anything that I saw from that like her her core strength is strong There's there's no dispute in that I didn't know that the Jerry Springer show was still in the league
1: me either I mean I was watching Jerry Springer 25 years ago so I mean that's got to be one of the longest running shows on TV right Dude, I mean
0: there was like a 18 month period where I don't know why but the Jerry Springer show was like the number one thing in television. I want to say Springer came on at four because we would watch Springer and then we go to the calf at five to get dinner because we were at that age where we ate all the time. So like five o'clock come around and we need food, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. And Pre-dinis we would watch snack. Springer. And I just remember, I, it, to me, it just felt like the most absurd day of my life. Like I don't know what the topic was on Springer, one of the five, because they only got like five like different topics, right? right. And then immediately after Springer was over, It was the day that I fully understood how the local news in Atlanta got down because the local news everywhere, it gets down in different places. It has little wrinkles. So like in California, Mm -hmm. the local news wrinkle, I mean, I don't know about Northern California, but I know in LA, it's car chases, right? Like they always got a helicopter up there ready for a car chase. I've never been anywhere else where they just always got car chases on the news. But the wrinkle in Atlanta is people from Atlanta. And the lead story on the news before we went out, was about somebody trying to set it off at chuck e cheese they tried to run up on the chuck e cheese before they opened i think they were trying to get there like right before the armored truck but while the you know the money was you know getting prepared to come out and i don't think it worked out very well i'm assuming that because in fact they couldn't have been trying to rob the armored truck because nobody died like you try to rob (laughs) the armored truck somebody's going to die
1: right Right. You're going to shoot it out. To your point, you know, I lived in Atlanta for a couple years. And I think one of the stories that most typifies that experience was in Duluth. They had an Applebee's and it was one of them Falcons Saints games mm-hmm. and people that gathered in the Applebee's to watch the game. And, you know, how the Falcons and Saints rivalry gets, yes. you know, some people might get a little talkative. One brother from uh, New Orleans, you know, goes out to his car, comes back and starts capping people in the parking lot. And you can actually look this story up. If you just do Duluth, Saints, and Applebee's, you can find out what happened. But I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's how Atlanta gets down, bro, you know?
0: Well, Yo, let me tell you, you talk about that look it up. One day, I decided I was gonna look up that Chuck E. Cheese story, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was a lot harder to find than I thought because Apparently, attempting to rob a Chuck E. Cheese is a bit more common in Atlanta than I had <laughs> presumed. I figured that I would Google about these dudes who tried to rob the Chuck E. Cheese, and the number one entry would be that one. But over the span of the 24 years or so since that first Chuck E. Cheese robbery, others have dared to try to rob the Chuck E. Cheese. And here's the thing to me about that I'm going to rob Chuck E. Cheese thing. And I feel you. You're going to try to rob Chuck E. Cheese, it makes sense. But let me tell you who does not do the hiring at Chuck E. Cheese. Charles Entertainment Cheese. He is not the person who does the hiring. The person who does the hiring at Chuck E. Cheese is somebody in Atlanta. And you know who they hiring? People in Atlanta. And you know what that oh. means? Somebody probably brought that thing with them to work, especially if they heard the cats be out here trying to rob the Chuck E. Cheese.
1: I did not know that the Chuck E. Cheese was considered the mark, like the Jared Sorensen of restaurants, the casual eateries, because... Who would, I mean, what about it? I mean, they got a lot of coins in there, but I just doesn't seem like you can really hit for a a decent lick out of there. But maybe that's the point.
0: Well, I think part of the point is nobody, they thinking nobody would expect you to rob a Chuck E. Cheese because who would do such a thing? But I do imagine, especially considering this is the 90s, so they got the money for the pizzas. But as you say, the coins, they got the money for all the stuff that's on the floor. And I mean, look, I got to say, this is just me, okay? Whenever you hear about somebody like robbing a bank, right? Like, yo, give me the money. They got, give me everything in the drawer. They don't really mean everything in the drawer. They just mean the bills. Like, you don't never see no reenactment of no bank robbery, and them dudes is like, give me that roll of quarters, too. All, all <laughs> the rolls of quarters. Can you imagine how tired your arms would be walking out with the haul of change
1: from Chuck E. Cheese? Man, look, I had a coin operated wash and dry as recently as 10 months ago and getting a whole bunch of quarters is hard like you got to like make a special get a little bag for it or whatever it's not easy so imagine trying to fill a sack of quarters You're going to have to bring some people with some real muscle with you, you know what I'm saying? Maybe a little big. It might be a little too easily identifiable uh, if you're going to try to pull that scam.
0: There's been some dude out here buying everything with a handful of change, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, as soon as you steal the money, man, you got to go blow it on some stuff and lay low with it, right? So you out here trying to buy whatever. (laughs) Y'all going to celebrate. You're going to go to the liquor store and get you a bottle of Remy to VSOP, you know what <laughs> I'm saying? Paying for it with a, with a bag of quarters and dimes.
1: Well, I'm saying it's kind of funny because you would steal the quarters out of Chuck E. Cheese and I immediately think, all right, well, when, how am I gonna use these quarters? Well, I guess I gotta try to find an arcade. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you just left the arcade. So, yeah, They're gonna I'll... track you down
0: from the <laughs> coin store. You go, you're gonna take your happy ass in there with all that change and pour it into the coin store.
1: I'm so hype on Double Dragon and all of a sudden it, <laughs> it came in on me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. How in the world we got there, I don't know. The reason we have you here is Slow Burn Season 6. I believe it is debuting November the 3rd is the date, I believe.
1: That would be, if I have my dates right, today... We're that's why it on i said Tuesday. november
0: 3rd that's why i said november, november 3rd, 3rd. 3rd. November 3rd. Just, okay just yeah give right give them the yes. day wednesday Coming november the third
1: wednesday november 3rd yeah wherever you listen to podcasts if you listen to podcasts it will be in that feed under slow burn yes sir
0: all right now the last slow burn the last one was the al-qaeda one right
1: yes right that's the lead okay. up to the iraq war there you go yes, got
0: it sir. okay that one i was not have not been able to check out the one before it though Josh Levin doing the joint on David Duke is an incredible piece of work. Because basically what he did was he just did a podcast on Donald Trump. It's just not about Donald Trump. It's about David Duke. But it is absolutely about Donald Trump. It's like the moment that he hits you that that's what's going on. You're like, oh, okay. And it had the late, great Edwin Edwards. You have taken on an incredible topic here with season six, which is the Los Angeles some people call it riot. Some people call it uprising. Some people call it rebellion. Either way, it happened in 1992 after Rodney King was beaten, and then the cops were acquitted. So this had to be, and I guess you're still doing it, but I mean, this has got to be just wild, daunting, and challenging. Also, kind of fun.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's the thing about it is that I mean, for such a somber, terrible catastrophic event it actually is a lot of fun because it has all these different things and like i always say this came up when i was working on season three of slow burn which was about biggie and Pac. because in episode two we cover how law enforcement all around the country but particularly in la and south central just ramped up its offense against these black communities or whatever and all of that fuels the birth and explosion of so-called gangster rap like you know the police I Cube, all that good stuff and so i'm in the middle of looking at all that i'm like man there's a lot of material here like there's just a lot of stuff that not even that i didn't know or that's just been sort of undercovered and in the course of doing that i just kind of put a you know put a bookmark in it i was like you know what if i ever get a chance to work on a story a big story because i didn't get a chance to pick the season of biggie and tupac that season was already chosen and i got to be the host this was something that i really really wanted to do and you know I think when I picked it up, I thought also, man, you know, I do a lot of reporting. I'll be in and out of L.A. a little bit. You know, I'll be down there every and again. And that pandemic kind of worked against me on that. But, um, yeah, man, this is something. That I'm hold, really on,
0: hold on, hold on. Pandemic ain't stop you from running up on the white folks at their cribs, though. You think I ain't going to talk about that? you took it down to South. When you down there in California, having people wouldn't answer um, your calls, so you had to yeah, show up at yeah, the crib. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're right. I, so I did take one trip in June. I spent a lot of time in Riverside County and Anaheim County. So it wasn't really L.A., but yes, I did have to knock on a judge's door in Manhattan Beach. Not very many of us out there in Manhattan Beach, you know what I'm saying? I did not get an answer. I left a letter, and uh, as to date, I have not heard from Judge Joyce Carlin. But if she happens to be a Right Time fan, you know, uh, (laughs) we still would love to talk to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, see, you got that actual, like, journalist reporter spirit about you. Because one reason I could not do the job that you can do is— I get a little nervous about talking to strangers. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that yeah. ain't that ain't really my bag. You be <laughs> at their cribs, right? Who was it, Josh Rosen, daddy, that tried to call oh, the
1: people on you? Manhattan Beach again, too, by the way. <laughs> I went to Manhattan Beach trying to get Josh Rosen because UCLA wouldn't let us talk to him. And I'm just thinking, this is regular. This is what reporting is. I get to knock on your door. Apparently, Mr. Rosen doesn't feel quite the same way. And he, uh, I thought he was calling the police on me, but he was calling the UCLA sports <laughs> information <laughs> director on me. But, uh, yeah, man, you know, I don't know if I find it easier to talk to strangers, but the stakes are so much lower to me. Mm. You know, when you're talking to somebody and somebody you care about, like, I don't know, like that just takes a lot more energy for me. But when I'm talking to somebody, I can just kind of go into autopilot. But I got a lot of experience with that. I mean, I'm an introvert by nature, but this part of it helps me to learn how to, you know, deal with folks. And I was raised as an only child. So all this, I don't know what it is about this field that really appealed to me, but I just get to go to people's houses or call them on the phone and they'll tell me stuff about their life. And like, that's the part of writing and journalism that I really still enjoy.
0: Yeah, so part I think about though, is that like 2021, people don't just knock on doors like that no more. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, like people don't knock on doors like that no more. You don't get phone calls from people that you don't know who it is because you don't answer it if you don't see it. Like I'm trying to imagine now, if you knocked on my door and it turned out that you were just a reporter, I'd be like, man and, and it ain't about me it's about something else oh okay right. yeah, yeah, yeah all right right don't come inside yeah. though we're gonna talk about it on the poach
1: right right nah man you know it, you're right like i i mean i can't think of the last time somebody random just showed up at my door actually somebody tried to sell me a newspaper subscription a year and a half ago and it was a scam because i never did get that paper but whatever i'll let that brother make it uh but yeah man i saw so i love you know, knocking on doors and it is discombobulating. Like I, I feel like that's one way to sort of disarm people when you show up at their home, maybe their guard is up initially. But if people see that you're willing to make the effort to meet them where they are, surprisingly, people will be willing to talk to you. I'm not that kind of person. If you showed up to my house and say, you want to talk about something, I'd be like, show me a business card, give me an email and I'll do some research and I'll get back to you. But uh, more often than not, thank God, people will, will welcome me in and let me talk to them.
0: So how's the process work for something like this? Like once you start, because this, I mean, this is a broad topic, the LA riots of 1992.
1: Okay. So how do you start something like this? <sighs> well, in terms of storytelling, the start was really easy for us. Like it was the Rodney King beating and George Holiday filming that beating. Like that was real easy to get our arms around it. And so we're still making storytelling choices, but we're probably going to end, you know, right at the tail end of the riot. So to me, that was sort of like a defined timeline, even though there's all these other impacts and all these other things that happened after, like there was a mayoral election, there was a presidential election, all these other things. But in terms of storytelling, that part of it was easy. But in terms of like what to read, what to watch, all the things I had to consume to get my heads around it. I mean, man, I wish I could show you my desk here. I've got like 20 books here, like 10 in Kindle that I've had to read all these articles. People have all these different you know, accounts of like what happened that day. And it's really, really overwhelming. But it's a lot of fun. Like, I never thought I would enjoy reading the Daryl Gates autobiography. You know what I mean? Like, I had to order a Playboy uh, with a Daryl Gates interview from 1991. You know, that sort of stuff. Like that stuff is like this, the, the feeling of discovery is really interesting to me. I had this perception and this idea of what happened during that particular time in Los Angeles and reading about it confirm some of those priors but also it just was really insightful to hear how people experience it for themselves too.
0: Well I was actually thinking about that because with the riots hit I think you were in like eighth grade right I was in seventh grade when this happens.
1: What grade were you in again?
0: I was in the seventh grade. Okay
1: so I, I would have either been or are you talking about the riots or are you talking about the tape? The riots. Okay there you go then you're right I was in eighth grade then All right. All yeah right.
0: and so it's interesting for me like I found when we did like a, the OJ revisiting for example where we were both at an age where we were obviously children but we didn't fully understand that right like we thought we got what was going on to seem you know it's got to be i think i'm just curious about what it is like for you going back on these things that you did live through but probably didn't fully understand at the time right like that discovery process you talk about
1: yeah no you know i mean there's a few things that happened <laughs> la had a black mayor at the time tom bradley and him trying to get his arms around what was essentially an unaccountable militaristic force within his own city is like a dynamic that is familiar to all of us now. Like if we read the news and we see like how politics work at local levels, even nationally, like if you just want to sort of draw a parallel to President Obama and like trying to convince, you know, white people to do things or trying to assert your authority and them being like, "Nah, you ain't really in charge, though like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, that sort of sense of discovery. And another thing, I mean, to be honest, I mean, you know, we talk about Rodney King all the time, but what really stuck in my mind from that time was the Latasha Harlan shooting, man. And I don't know if a lot of people know about that, but it was a 15-year-old girl. She was shot by a convenience store owner in South Central Los Angeles in the back of the head for allegedly, the woman accused her of stealing orange juice. That's not what happened. But like, To viscerally see these things, like the beating of Rodney King, the shooting of Latasha Harlins, that always really left an impression on me. I was like, is that how the world works for real? Like, you could just get killed as a 15-year-old? Somebody could pull out a gun and shoot you in the back of the head and nothing really happened to you? Or the police can surround you and beat you up like that on camera and nobody really seems to pay a price for it? Although, later they did. But yeah, it just that part of it that sense of discovery reading about all that stuff and how these things happened and the build up to it i didn't know any of that stuff but how would we have Bo? i mean you know what news consumption was like back then like if it was really big it hit what 2020 or Mm -hmm. 60 minutes but i mean nationally it wasn't that big a deal so like there was no way for us to sort of know what the la times and ktla and all these other people were saying about those things at the time And like that part of it is like really interesting to me
0: yeah and i think when the verdict came down you and I had not lived long enough to entertain the possibility that there might be an acquittal. Right. Like, <laughs> like this, yeah. this didn't seem like a trial that required. I follow it. Right. Like, I didn't know what the day to day was. Well, what did
1: you think? Because, I mean, you grew up so different from other folks. Right. Like your folks yeah. are like in the movement folks. So, I mean, I can only imagine like what their response was to it. Like. This is America. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. like
0: <laughs> I got to be careful saying what my daddy's response was when all that stuff broke out. <laughs> Let's just say there was an understanding of the anger uh, from, from, the, uh, from the patriarch of the Jones household. But I never thought that there was a way in the world. Like, there was a tape. It was right, right. there. And, like, you know, and I think in my thoughts on this time, I did not realize as it happened, because I was too young as it happened to fully get like the impact of the police when it came yeah. out, because it comes out in 1988. Right. And I guess to me, the idea of police brutality had always felt ubiquitous. Like it's just something that, you know, went on. I thought that we just kind of knew about this. I didn't really have a grasp on how that for a whole different generation that people know, hey, you know, they were out here beating people up. And then that made 92. It made 88 seem like prophecy, even though it right. was just kind of not. Nah, this is how stuff is all the time.
1: Right. You know, it's interesting because you grew up one way with a certain group of folks. And I grew up with, you know, folks that I don't know how to say it, but the children of the Jim Crow South. So they're skeptical of the police. But they also kind of like as a kid, I'm thinking, well, you know, they're saying F the police or whatever, but and police probably are bad, but you know, those are the kind of dudes they would be with the police. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. that's an interaction that they've, a bargain that they've already made by the lives they're living. I'm thinking this at like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, because I'm like, why would the police just beat people up for no reason? You know, I didn't have a better understanding of the world, and it's not like my parents had either the language or even necessarily the experience. Like, to them, they just grew up in a world where all white people were bad and police (laughs) were just some of them. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But not the police in particular. And that's something that you had to learn on your own. And so, like, the video and the subsequent rides for that were, like, sort of revelatory, then you understand that music, because, like, you know, I don't know about you, but at that time, like, Ice Cube was probably my favorite rapper, like, up until Bootlegs and B-Sides, like, he probably was my favorite rapper, solo rapper, and like, we had to tear this up, you know what I'm saying, like, that was, like, one of my joints, and I was like, okay, now I understand the Rage, but, like, if the police didn't hit me in quite the same way until, like you said, we saw that video and we saw the trial, and we're just like, "Oh, wait a minute, this system is kind of really messed up."
0: Yeah, it's like, "Oh, y'all mean it. Like yes. this ain't just something, this ain't <laughs> this ain't just something for y'all to say. Like, oh wait, you guys like there's a serious level of animus here between you and the local law enforcement operation."
1: Yeah, there's a legitimate reason. And did you watch the NWA biopic a few yes. years ago? Yes. And they had the scene. Where I, oh, I can look at your face. I don't. You, I, you must not have enjoyed it that much.
0: Um, it's not that I didn't enjoy it, right? But there was just stuff in there. They were like, time, what is time? Yes, someone is going to be at this NWA concert in 1988 with a Rodney Hampton Giants jersey on. Never mind that Rodney Hampton didn't get drafted until 1990. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, right. But then, you know, you see that scene uh, when they're a group with the police. And I'm like, oh, they actually experienced some of this. I was like, I get it. It wasn't just... You know, I think like CB4, which was a take on, you know, sort of the NWA and West Coast gangster stuff like you're thinking, oh, this is just for to sell albums. Like they didn't really experience it. They're just whatever. But no, like a lot of young black men, particularly at that time, particularly in L.A., they actually did have this experience with police. And so it means hearing that music today, it even sounds different to the ear. I'm like, OK, they're actually talking about some stuff that like they really experienced. You know,
0: I would also note, though, the story behind what made them do to police it's awkward for me because apparently they were riding around shooting at people with paintball guns, <laughs> just running up on people, at which point the cops ran up on them and on a scale of one to ten of egregious police behavior <laughs> that's left to five right like, like 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 like. i mean you know that's that's y'all's kind of tripping you know yeah like, you know like, i'm glad you were able to channel that and to actually make a coherent statement but if, if right. it had started out with me and the homies riding with the paintball it would not have gone <laughs> over the same way
1: right i mean i kind of feel like you know Maybe by today's verbiage, the way we think of it, maybe we would have liked to have seen community intervention and that the police didn't have to be involved and we can do some sort of restorative justice within the community. But yeah, I was like, hey, man, y'all know y'all were tripping, though. You know what I'm saying? Somebody was going to have to stop y'all from doing that because y'all were not going to just realize it was wrong all on your own.
0: <laughs> so in going through the story and like the riots themselves, I'm curious how much you guys plan to or have been able to get into just the levels of segregation in Los Angeles. Because I know one detail that people from LA bring up about the riots that is always worth noting, which is cops lining up along I 10, along Interstate 10 running east west through LA, which is the line in LA. Those are the tracks, for lack of a better term, in Los Angeles. And the cops lining up to make sure wherever the damage took place, it was not gonna happen north of the 10.
1: It's over there, right? You know, we could definitely get into some of that. I mean, one of the things that like, and I don't know if I'll even, all the information that I have, I can't put it all into the podcast, but like, for instance, like Watts, you know, in the 20s, 30s, a white neighborhood, you know, that was a white area, right? soon as these black folks come from the South, trying to find, you know, L.A., you know, trying to free themselves of the shackles of the Jim Crow South, and they start moving into Watts where there's more affordable housing, and they're thinking about municipalizing, like having their own government. LA annexes them, brings them in because there's no way that black people should be able to govern themselves, right? So yeah, we get a lot into that and like how South Central ended up the way that it did. That's not by accident. Like that's where people were redlined into those neighborhoods. And as a result, it made it easier for the police to keep up with them and to police them and to put their resources there. And you have all this stuff going on for years and years and years, just black folks just taking this stuff, you know, being isolated from the wealthier parts of town, isolated from resources, They're over-policed. And so, yeah, like, segregation is a story in every town in this country. Like, there's not—I always say, because I used to be a reporter when I would go out all the time, and I'd be, no matter where you go in this country, from Seattle to Key West, there are some black people mad about how the white people in their town are treating them. But Mm -hmm. it is very much a piece of this story about how the segregation really exacerbated a lot of the tensions here, because eventually— their segregation bore the fruit and a lot of that was those you know unrest you know and all those other things that went on so yeah
0: did you um in the course of your research come across this book called city of quartz
1: Yes, Mike Davis, yes.
0: Okay, I yes. never got to the end of City of Quartz. I, I read about half of it, right? It's excellent. I just one of those that I just did not get to the end of.
1: Oh, when they talk about people moving out to the desert and starting communities and stuff like that? Yeah. I, I, that's early in the book, but yes, 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 yes. It's a great book.
0: There are two things that stuck out about that book. It's kind of a neo-Marxist look at the building of Los Angeles, right? But two observations I took from it that'll always stick with me. One is that L.A. is just a collection of gangs. Like, every, like it's a collection. It, everybody came there from these far flung places and they click up with whoever the people are and whatever level it was. Like gang life in Los Angeles makes a lot more sense when you realize everybody else is a gang It just don't sound like it because it's like the Armenians, the Guatemalans, the Jews, the people who work here, the people, you you understand what I'm, you know, the
1: Koreans. Yeah, just right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly.
0: And so black people who have left their family structures, everything else don't have anything institutional to lean on. And what brings them together, black is a little bit flimsy when you think about it as an actual tie that binds. And so, yeah, gangs pop up. You would expect that. But the other thing I'll never forget about that book that I did not realize about California was L.A. was sold by pamphlet like the growth of los angeles came back in the days where they would put advertisements in magazines and send out pamphlets and stuff about come check out this place and people really would pack up all day sh- and move based on what they had been reading in these advertisements in magazines like when you watch commercials like the, it's better in the bahamas commercials they used to run back in the day not to go vacation though people will watch it like doing that and then moving but they told the white people it wasn't no black people there that was a, a huge yeah, right. selling point is right. that California and Los Angeles specifically was an all-white paradise, that you're going to get out here, it's going to be beaches, it's going to be palm trees, it's going to be all these things, and there's going to be no black people. That's why you got all these people move from the Midwest, like Beverly Hills 90210, we moved from Minnesota to LA. Hell, the Minnesota Lakers moving from there to LA, like that was the story, and then you can't do nothing like that and think we're not about to show up.
1: We heard about it, too. <laughs> right. Right. We like sunshine. We like right. temperate climates. You know what I'm saying? Right.
0: All this land. Right. And that's where that part in The Warmth of Other Suns, the, to me, the most heartbreaking part of The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wiggerson is when old buddy's uh, trying to get that room in Arizona. He moving from Atlanta, drive all the way across there to move to LA. And he gets to Arizona and nobody will give him a room. And he comes to this one hotel and the guy says, look, I would love to give you a room. I'm from Illinois. I see things differently than these people do down here. But if I give you a room, they're gonna put me out of business. But I need to tell you something. I went to USC and what you think you're going to is not what you're going to. Yeah, and that's what yeah. happened to all these black people. Like they, they they moved on a promise that was reasonable because they're like, we get out of the south. Everything gonna right. be okay, right? No. Right. No, it right.
1: won't. And maybe there was a little bit more freedom of movement. Maybe there was an opportunity at property ownership that they did not have back home. But, yeah, the fundamentals were basically the same, you know. yeah, uh, Was that Dr. Foster? That's the yeah, guy we're thinking of. That came from Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah, man. I mean, so it's funny you said that about the way that they sold it as a white man's paradise. Because, yeah, I mean, one thing that comes up over and over again is that through, you know, maybe the 30s. People called California, Los Angeles in particular, Iowa and the Pacific, right? All those people from the Midwest. It's very conservative culture with all these people that wanted to avail themselves of the climate and all these new opportunities or whatever. And, yeah, as soon as black people show up, it's not quite as cool. And then, I mean, just think about the immigration from in 1965, the migration of Mexican immigrants into the country. Like, we were ruining their paradise, man. You know what yes. I'm saying? Like those white people, they we didn't sign up for this. We could have stayed an hour. We didn't want to be around black people, you know?
0: They would trade the beach for the snow if we yes. wasn't there.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. I we didn't want that. And so, like, that is a part of how LAPD is empowered to like wield this power over people. Cause they're like, hey man, you better get these brown people under control. I ain't signed up for all this, bro. And they were so fortunate that they had people in the visage of bill parker who is uh a legendary policing figure like i don't know if but do you think people know what dragnet is anymore like that that's that's too old no they don't that's yeah that's,
0: man. we're old i mean we are how about old. this how about this the dragnet movie which was at the time about the old tv show is now the old dragnet movie
1: oh god yeah man i mean we're just oh we're dragnet was a very popular one of the most popular tv shows in the 50s and 60s and it springs from the mind of bill parker who was the lapd chief for 16 years from 1950 to 1966 and it did a real great job in selling the lapd is like this very noble organization people that protect didn't serve and and bill parker is also the person that came up with the term the thin blue line right so there's this real belief that like Hey, if not for us, if not for LAPD, these hordes of brown and black people are going to come get y'all, bro. And so they empowered him to do a lot of bad things to preserve that image of L.A. that everybody had been sold in the first place.
0: Right. And then the police chief in the 90s and well before that, Daryl Gates, his O.G. is Bill Parker. And I think in in line with what I was telling you for City of Courts, O.G. is the right term to use. But that's where Daryl Gates got his game. And the LAPD, I think if people saw a lot of this stuff in the O.J. Made in America film that Ezra Edelman did, but it is worth noting that they weren't just looking for police officers to deal with all the black and brown people. They were specifically recruiting in the South yep. to get yep. officers, honestly, who had the spirit that was necessary for what they were asking.
1: So in at least, and I don't want to credit this too much, but like there were at least two accounts I've heard, um, read and one heard, that Bill Parker himself Recruited officers from KKK meetings in the South. You know what I mean? So like anybody you ask, like people will waffle on whether or not Daryl Gates is racist or whatever, right? but you know whatever? it Doesn't matter. We can talk about the impact, right? Bill Parker. People don't waffle on that. They're like, no, that dude was a ra- <laughs> that dude was a Stone Cold racist. The only person that doesn't agree, at least publicly, is Daryl Gates. Okay, because that <laughs> reflects poorly on him, right? But yeah, I mean that's the kind of mentality them folks had man that they did that and the impact of the LAPD I can't emphasize enough on the rest of the policing profession has been tremendous like they sent people out people that worked under Bill Parker went on to become police chiefs in Dallas and Fort Worth Beverly Hills Pasadena many of his other deputies spread out all across the country so the LAPD style of policing has been nationalized really you know in the last half century or whatever and a lot of it comes from Bill Parker and Daryl Gates who like you said Daryl Gates was I guess it was his little homie. With, you know, you got your, your OG, you got your little homie, and that's who Daryl Gates was.
0: Yeah, no, like, there's so much to this. Like, I almost, like, talking about, like, the riots themselves just almost feels secondary, right? Because that's just a thing. And, like, the aftermath, of course, though, and I think is the cruelest part that gets lost in this, is after all that stuff burned down, when well, nobody there to do no rebuilding, there was no, no empathy offered, no understanding of any of that stuff. Like, what I don't know about L.A. because I don't know it well enough. But like you can go to Miami and go to places where after the McDuffie riots in 1980, you can see they're there and ain't nothing happened, right? Like they look just like they did 40 years ago when that went down and LA. And I feel like in a lot of places it never came back because nobody wanted to put in the work to do it.
1: It fundamentally changed. I will say I went to LA for the first time in my life when I was a freshman in college to visit a friend and we took a road trip down with, you know, some of our boys, we went down from Stanford to LA and, um, I remember, this is what, 97? Yeah, 97. So LA, like in those parts we're talking about, total, like devastation. Like it looked like the fires, had just started, you know, going out. That like Somebody had just put it out. And I know that like, there have been some improvements. I mean, LA has very expensive real estate. So, you know, things have changed a little bit, but fundamentally in terms of the people in the communities, that was ruined forever as a result of this. And I, you know, it's funny you, you said that, Bo, because if you go back to the 65 watch riots, There was a real effort to try to address some of the wrongs and some of the conditions. Like they came up with programs, jobs programs, put money into it, started a community theater, all that stuff. But people didn't have like the passion or there were no resources to sustain it. And so it fell apart and they were like. Well, man, what a waste of time. So you could see that certainly influencing what happened in 92 and 93 when they say like, well, I'll give these people money anyway. It's gonna to go to waste. We don't really want to do this anyway. And so people can just sort of walk away from it.
0: Now, are there some figures that you came across in your research that you were just unaware of before starting this? Like, you know, kind of like my man, was named Chico Del Vey in the- uh, Oh, Chico Del it, Vey.
1: yeah, my yeah, boy.
0: It, yeah, so have you come across anybody like that? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, there are a couple, Um, man, I'm trying to say, do I want to say who it is? Well, I mean, one thing about it is like Rodney King's family to me was a total mystery. And like the people that hung out with him. And we, I think we've talked about this a little bit before that like Rodney King was a joke to us growing up that he was kind of set up as like a comedic figure, you know, the, you know, can we all just get along and he didn't seem very bright and all that stuff. He wasn't, you know, necessarily the most articulate on the mic. Right. Uh, At that time. So people made a joke of him. It was real easy to do that. But for us what i wanted to do was humanize him like i was like let me revisit this and talk to the people that are close to him and i mean like learning about him has been sort of revelatory like it's it's funny to say you asked me have i learned about people and there's a lot of others like latasha harlins's family like that story like revisiting that is like terrible but the discovery process of learning about rodney king and the people that were around him that tried to help him hold it together. After the beating, to me, was like I was learning about a new person, essentially, because there's the guy that got beat on camera, the guy that was a joke, the guy that was on Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, you know, about 15 years ago. But like learning about who he was, how gentle he was, how troubled he was. Um, and I don't mean that it's like to levy judgment against him, but to say that like he really had a very difficult life before and after the beating. So like just like learning about him on that, like that was like the big deal for me. But there's, you know, plenty of other people that have popped up. The people that I spoke to that uh, helped to put the tape on CNN and help the story blow up. Like, you know, you don't even think about people like that when you're growing up because there's no reason this would have been a national story at the time. But there are people that were in place that helped it to become a national story. And we talked to a lot of them. And yeah, man, it's just... We're not done, but my, that's the thing. You know what I'm saying? like, There's no trophy to give out right now. I'm not done. I'm at, that, at the finish line. There's still people to talk to, but um, that piece of it has been really, really fun, like in revelatory, le- learning about you know the people that you think we know a lot about, but that don't actually.
0: You know, that thought about Rodney King being a joke, I hadn't really given that a lot of thought until you mentioned it right there, because it's funny, the Ice Cube line that, I mean, objectively speaking, might be one of the best Ice Cube lines ever. Uh, so. Charlie Manson. I pull him out of the truck, hit him with a brick, with a brick and I'm and dancing.
1: I'm dancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we know that's a terrible line, but we were like, yo, that went though. That was like, I was like Yo, he but killed, here's the he thing that though.
0: Yeah. That part where you said right there, we know that it's a terrible line, because it's obviously a takeoff of Reginald Denny, hashtag white Reggie being pulled out of his truck, right? And when we talk about Reginald Denny getting beat and that line comes, we're like, oh yeah, no, terrible line. We never recoiled in any way in talking about Rodney King after he was beaten by the state, like we asked questions about whether or not he had it coming or we don't know what happened before the tape, but we all know, hey, what what happened to Reginald Denny was messed up. Everybody gonna lead with that. And it was a judgment call on whether you led with that about Rodney King.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think maybe in part of it is that we've just come to accept that like the police get that sort of impunity, that they can beat the hell out of us and that that's the way of the world. And to see like black people respond in that way like I think we're acculturated to the idea that black people are supposed to be forgiving and not raise a fuss and we're supposed to accept racism on the chin and keep it moving and like that happened to Reginald Denny is not the example of that and that was jarring to people that black people might get mad that has always been the fear of like black rebellion or whatever and so yeah it was really really jarring and it was jarring to Rodney King like Rodney King who got his ass beat like, that's why he was moved to say something in the first place, because he was like, man, that was wrong, which I did to Reginald Denny. The dude who got beat, you know what I'm saying? So it was a real inflection point in the way people even viewed the uprising and whether or not you think of it as, like, a remorseless, stupid bloodletting or, like, a rebellion of people that had been oppressed for far too long.
0: Yeah, you no, know, that was like, hey, man, come on, dog." He was just trying to... He, he clearly doesn't want to be here.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, so... There's been a lot of talk about that, right? And, like, Rodney King actually did, bro. I mean, can I say this? I'm going to go ahead and say it. I talked to his brother yesterday, like, literally yesterday. And that was the first time I got his brother on the phone. he was like, man, Rodney wasn't even really that mad at the cops. He said after it was all over. He said he wasn't even really mad. He was more mad about the Reginald Denny thing, and he was more bad about the cops getting off. But, like, after the ass beating, he was just like, you know, I mean, you know, I forgive people. That was the Rodney King thing. And he really did want to speak to people about it. And it just kind of came out a little weird. They gave him a prepared speech and he threw it away and did his thing, which actually, you know, has resonated far longer than anything. He probably would have said in a prepared statement that day.
0: Yeah. It resonated more, but like, don't nobody take Rodney K's. Can we all get along as a mantra for us to follow? People oh. laughed like, 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 yo, he just caught the L at every turn. He tried to unify the city. We was like,
1: I did. No, Yeah, so many more of us were on the Ice Cube tip than on the Rodney (laughs) King tip. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, man. At that time, there was a rumor. uh, Maybe we were just coming up with rumors where, you know, People that said Reginald Denny rolled his window down and was calling people the N-word and stuff. You know, it was that kind of like misinformation. If <laughs> no, he that wasn't was going on to, ju- right, to justify what it happened, it was like, nah, that's that's not quite right, bro. Sorry, let me no. tell you something.
0: If Reginald Denny had actually done that, I might have had to give him some props for being the bravest man in the <laughs> world, right? Like, or he must have right. already concluded, I am going to die tonight. Like you must have made mission. that decision right. before if you had actually done that, right? And right. he probably rolled down his window and said, Said, tommy don't want y'all to wear his clothes <laughs>
1: how or about timberland right you know what i'm saying <laughs> timberland don't want your business neither uh yeah no man but you know that i mean of course that was all of us just trying to cover with the reason to make it less terrible like maybe he deserved it but nah, not quite but yeah you make a great point man that like not a lot of people evaluated like we made a joke of rodney king getting his ass beat ralph wiley somebody we both You know, really admire. I remember reading one of his essays as a kid, and he talked about that, that, like the way that people responded to Reginald Denny. And it was just like, did y'all just miss what happened to Rodney King? You know, like, why are you so outraged about this and not Rodney King? And that's still a good question to ask even to this day.
0: Hey, man, so how many episodes are we going to have by the end of this? (sighs)
1: So we got eight, and we're going to drop them every Wednesday. And every Wednesday, in addition to that episode, there'll be a slate. Plus bonus episode with me and the producer, Jason DeLeon, we'll be talking about what happened behind that episode and then there'll be an interview. And I guess I can go ahead and say like the first one that comes out today, we'll have our interview with George Holiday, who um, recorded the tape. And he actually, di- I mean, man, you know, we had to have had one of the last interviews with him because he died of COVID just in September. But uh, we talked to him for like two hours. And so that'll be on one of the slate bonus episodes that comes out November 3rd.
0: You going to catch up with Reggie Denny and uh, play natural ball and killers for him?
1: Man, uh come on, man. Reginald, look, if you, too, are a right-time listener, I would love to talk to you. We have not got that far in the process yet, but just know that I'm looking for you, my brother. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to play no natural born killers for him. Ice Cube. Ice Cube's politics kind of, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, eh. eh. Pull him out
0: the truck, mm. hit him with a brick, mm. and I'm dancing. What's yeah, <laughs> the dancing that was just like a <laughs>
1: Hey, wait, but, but money, bro did dance. Do You remember he I did don't. like, he like, I, I mean, don't. it was just like, I oh, I oh know. man. I know. Oh, man. Was, I'm ashamed for thinking that was dope. I'm I'll sorry. i trying
0: to imagine what it had to be like, just being like a regular black person living in LA who, while bothered, did not feel like burning things. Right. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> like, 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 what are you like? I remember my daddy like, so my parents are of similar sensibilities, but different temperaments. Right. So my mother attended the March on Washington. My father mm-hmm. thought it was a bit of a sellout. Move. They they had not met by this time, just to be clear. Okay, uh, but um, my pops thought it was a bit of a sellout move to be asking a man for permission and then go up there. You know what I'm saying? So like, there's there's always levels in how everything goes. But when these cats is out here
1: burning it down, and you' mad, but you like,
0: nah, man, that ain't really my bag. You know what I'm saying? That's not really what I'm going. That, that's right. not really what I'm going to do. Sucker.
1: I uh, no, Right. Well, where am I going to get my groceries? you know what i'm saying <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah where am i gonna get my groceries now <laughs>
0: right who's the black person in the neighborhood that's the equivalent of if y'all protest on the freeway how i'm supposed to get to work
1: because <laughs> they there oh it's not an insignificant number of folks too you know that i mean and we've talked to some folks and read about some folks that yeah like there were a lot of people that like nah that was crazy though for real now nah, y'all. Yeah. Y'all need to do all that, and I guess reasonable people can disagree.
0: Yeah, let me tell you what I found though of folks from LA of a certain age, especially if they was teenagers at that time. Let them tell it. All of them came up on free stuff, right? Oh it's kind, yeah, it's kind of like the first episode of the Boondocks where Grandpa is <laughs> pretending like he was out here participating in the movement, yeah, and in reality <laughs> he had left to go get his raincoat.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like also it's like people that were like at the Wilt Chamberlain hundred point game. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, man, I their everything, bro. I got a Sega Genesis. I got some new Jordans. You know what I'm saying? We've got some bread. All of that, you know? And so it's like, nah, I don't. I mean, shoot. I'm going to say, actually, in terms of the black folks we've spoken to, I'm going to say all of them, one way or another, say that they cop something. during the the unrest i don't i can't verify that for sure but they say they did right
0: and one thing i didn't get to because we're running out of time but i imagine there must be some exploration of the interaction between uh the afro-americans and our asian brothers
1: and sisters (sighs) yeah man that hits an episode too because that's dealing with the latasha harlins episode and i think i made reference to it a little bit earlier but yeah yeah. so yeah we're going to be getting into that um really uncomfortable conversation something that is still resonates today right uh is marginalized communities trying to find common cause and figure out how we're gonna make our way in this country so yeah man we had to talk about that and it's it's really i mean like i said it it turned out to be timely i didn't plan it this way but it turned out to be timely
0: all right man that is joel anderson slow burn season six available right now wherever you get uh your podcast i'll tell you all that representing it 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 could north side ain't really
1: houston no, sorry, I didn't really.
0: <laughs> That's how y'all are, boy. That's how y'all are. You're from a city that ain't even called Houston. But ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gabe Bassane, Dave Presley, had a things behind the scenes? Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for letting me slide there, Joe, because I know what you want to say, but it would be not be factual if you did. Uh, remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you're a hater like Joe. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy.